Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, and welcome to New Books and Genocide Studies. My name is Kelly McFall from Newman University, and I'm a host on the show, which is part of the New Books Network of podcasts. And today I'm thrilled to welcome Sarah Brown and Stephen Smith to the show. They're the editors of a terrific new book, The Routledge Handbook of Religion, Mass Atrocity, and Genocide. Sarah's been on the show before. Stephen is new to us. Um, and I just want to briefly say, and this is uh, uh, something I say a lot with edited volumes, um, but I particularly mean with this volume. This is an extraordinary book. It's it's uh, got such a rich array of of contributions uh, in a variety of time periods and 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 geographies, and we're never going to have time to get to all of it. So I want to say from the start. Uh, that we won't get to everything. And I want to encourage you to go go read it or, or go, go, go buy it because I learned so much from reading this book uh, and I'm looking forward to talking to Sarah and Stephen about it. So Sarah and Stephen, thanks for joining us. Welcome to New Books and Genocide Studies. Thank you. Thank you very much. So we always ask people to introduce themselves a little bit to the audience. Um, and Sarah, I know you've been here before, but it's been a while and Stephen, you're new at least on this channel. So Stephen, why don't you start? Um, Tell us a little bit about how you became interested in violence and religion as an academic specialty and, and, and what you do in your life. Yeah, it actually goes back to the early 1990s where I was interested as a Christian theologian in the phenomenon of anti-Semitism within the Christian world. And took myself off to Israel thinking I was going to write a PhD in that subject and found myself at Yad Vashem, the Holocaust Memorial in Jerusalem. And there it became very clear to me that this seminal moment, this horrific seminal moment in West European civilization's history um, had not yet really been confronted in the way in which it needed to be. And my question was really, how is it that this has been left to the Jews um, to tell the story, to remember, to build memorials, and yet the rest of the world, it seems, can just walk away um, and not confront the failure of its own civilization, including that of the Christian churches. 
Um, that took me on a long journey, which we'll, we'll keep for another podcast on another channel. But um, it, it, in the end, I ended up creating with my brother the National Holocaust Center in the UK between 1991 and 1995, during which time genocide took place in the former Yugoslavia and in Rwanda. And uh, then I found myself as a bystander watching genocide unfold in the contemporary world while memorializing it for um, in the UK and committed then to developing a strategies around prevention and founded um, the Aegis Trust for Genocide Prevention. Um, and that then led me my own scholarship to to focus more on genocide. I, I've made my way to the University of Southern California, where I headed the USC Shoah Foundation for a dozen years. And while doing that, I uh, was uh, one of the creators of the USC Shoah Foundation's Center for Advanced Genocide Studies, in which we looked at how do we collect these testimonies of genocide witnesses from around the world and bring them into our scholarship, sometimes in a real-time context, such as with um, the Rohingya and with uh, Uyghur and others. And so that's what I've been involved in, and uh, it uh, was, uh, in fact, the um, editor at Routledge, Rebecca Shillivere, who said, look, you're a theologian and you're studying genocide studies. Isn't it time that we had a handbook on religion and genocide? And that was the origins of this book. Sarah, what about you? Um, so for me, growing up as a young Jewish person in America, my introduction to this topic was actually through one of the contributors to our handbook. Uh, Walter Ziffer used to speak as a survivor at my synagogue for Yom HaShoah each year. And so I have a very strong memory as a child of that being my first interaction with a survivor. And for me, religion and genocide intersected because these um, spaces for commemoration were always taking place at synagogues for me growing up. Um, and then I believe that when we had said never again, after the Holocaust that we had meant it. And in my naivete, I come into college, my undergraduate studies, and I'm thinking, uh, I, I've said this before on your podcast, so I won't go into too much detail about what a bad student I was, but I was looking for long weekends. I found a what I thought would be an easy course, Intro to Genocide Studies, because what can they teach me that I didn't already learn uh, in my synagogue experiences? And um, there I was confronted with the genocide against the Tutsi in Rwanda. And for me, it was this shocking moment where I realized that genocide had happened after the Holocaust again and again and again. And that caused me to redirect my studies and pursue a concentration in Holocaust and genocide studies at the Strasser Center for Holocaust and Genocide Studies. I was very fortunate to do my undergraduate uh, work at Clark University in Worcester, Massachusetts. And I came back to it. Uh, I worked in the field in refugee camps um, and then in refugee resettlement. And I came back to do, and then I did my master's um, in diplomacy and government studies, thinking that what I wanted to do was work with refugees, populations, migration. Um, but I, 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 underneath all of it, there were these core questions about why were these people having to flee their home countries in the first place? And so I pursued my PhD back at Clark. I returned home and uh, did a degree in comparative genocide studies, examining the role of women during the genocide against the Tutsi in Rwanda. And there I started comparing between women who perpetrated and women who rescued and religion and faith and a belief in God was featured over and over and over again, that it became um, almost uh, expected for me when I interviewed uh, rescuers, that somewhere in their conversation, they would talk about the hand of God, God's will, God's protection. Uh, God is both a motivator and also a source of um, solace. 
And so it was there in the background, but I had yet to really um, formulate any hard ideas around this type of study, this uh, tremendous volume, until I was doing my postdoc at uh, USC Shoah Foundation. And Stephen approached me and said, I have this idea for a handbook. And do you want to, do you have any ideas for contributors? And we started spitballing back and forth, brainstorming. And before I knew it, we were co-editing it. And then before I knew it, it was the pandemic and still we persevered. Um, and this tremendous volume is the product of so many different people who are involved. And I'm so, I'm so proud of it. No, yeah, it's a great book, um, as I said, and, and, and listeners should go out and get it. I will say if you're the, the editors at Rutledge and the people who laid out the book recognize that um, that people like me might need additional light sources to read the small text, but that is in some sense because of so much information being in there. So, so yeah, so that's an interesting, so Stephen suggested that, um, that this was in some ways suggested by the press, which is a different, right? There's, there's a couple different ways books can come about is one is that this is your idea and you've been working on it forever and you pitch it, and, but this is the other way. So, so then you have this idea and you have this relationship with the press, which is e eager to have you submit something. Walk us through a little bit about how you conceptualize the book. Clearly you brainstorm participants, but, but presumably you had some sense of what you were looking for and what kind of topics that you wanted this to cover. How do you imagine the task of this book and what did you want it to do? Stephen, you can start. Yeah, we didn't start with the participants. Mm. Uh, we started with the structure, um, and I think both Sarah and I agreed that from the outset it had to be comparative in some way, um, that it needed to look at genocide and religion through the long arc of history, that seeing this not, you know, there's been so much focus on genocide as a 20th century phenomenon, mm -hmm. as a kind of a modern contemporary f uh, phenomenon, but we wanted to go back in time and look at the various types of genocide, which may not include the tradition, you know, the way in which we think about genocide in the 20th century, where in fact, it may have been deeply wound into the culture, including the religious culture of uh, whether they are sacred texts that we can now go back to or early histories or ways of thinking about how society and religion and identity are formed. Um, where to, you know, maybe to slaughter your uh, neighboring clan or tribe or in this context of, say, Hebrew scriptures, you know, the, the potential threat to the people of Israel, for example, would be seen as a sacred task, which is, you know, in the sacred literature. And that's been pretty well studied, but it, it's also now seeing that in the context of other phenomena that would be happening at the time. So I think that those are two couple of principles. Sarah, you could perhaps build on that because we kind of, we sat there and we sketched it out and we went, oh, wow, there's a lot here. And we know that we're genocide scholars, but you know, it's only when you come to say, we've got potentially 40 chapters and it sounds like a lot. And then you realize it's not enough. <laughs> it's not enough. So how do we whittle it down, Sarah? You, you'll remember that, I'm sure. Oh, gosh. You remember we started with nine sections. We had this really big idea of nine sections. And just and now I'm imagining because we have um, six, and even in the six, we cover so much. I'm just imagining what it would have been like to add another third onto, or another half onto this book. Mm -hmm. 
um, that would have just been a tremendous, it would gone, it would have gone from being a, a really hefty and significant doorstop to a weapon. Um, so, you know, we had these initial sections, we had this idea of a long arc. We also were really committed to this idea of having a diverse array of case studies that examine and really pull apart the threads of this intersection between um, religion, faith, a set of beliefs, and then these acts of mass violence. Um, and I think for that us, that was really important to have a, a diversity of case studies, but also whenever possible, authors who could who were close to coming from or or closely studying these topics often originating from that country or that region. And then another thing that was extremely important to us was gender parity. And we almost had that, almost perfectly so. Um, but then, and I, I was chuckling as you were speaking, Stephen, then the pandemic occurred. Right. And for us, this proposal, you know, going from proposal and idea, this, uh, this really great concept that we had um, to how it took shape, uh, it reminds me of the fact that we have this myth of a, of a, ivory tower where academics are removed from reality, but we were in this very unique situation all of a sudden in the midst of writing and, and, and we'd already uh, sent out the call for chapter proposals. We were already starting to receive some submissions and then the pandemic shut down the entire world. It wasn't one part of the world experiencing a, a period of disruption where they could not contribute their chapters. It was all of us across all of the continents going through this in some way, shape or form and that really did um, change uh, our approach. It changed some of our contributors. Unfortunately, we saw a number of women having women contributors having to drop out because of, and, and it was so interesting that across the board, almost all of them cited family obligations. Um, I, even I personally, after I experienced COVID, I had to sit down and really think in a, a bit of long COVID with brain fog. I had to really sit down and brainstorm with Stephen how I was going to get through some of this. Um, it was really a challenging time. And I also want to own that even with what we had projected out, what we had wanted, the sections and the topics we wanted to cover, there's also the fact that the the process took shape organically based on the people who responded to our call. Mm. And so they were the ones we couldn't go out and dictate, you cover this topic and you cover that case study. We could solicit certain contributions. But in the end, it was shaped by our uh, our community, our academic community and what they wanted to to tackle. Also worth mentioning as well um, in this context of you know, how did it, the, the format shape up? Not only did the pandemic alter, you know, we, we lost several authors because of that. Um, but also there was unfolding genocide, you know, we, the, the, the chapters on the Uyghur and the um, Rohingya were not in the original concept, not because they wouldn't have been in our minds, but they were not at that point, you know, fully unfolded. Um, and the, the, the specifics of the, um, of the, the, nine, the 2017 um, you know, flood of refugees from Myanmar into Bangladesh had occurred when we were scoping this. But at that point, we didn't have authors that we could turn to. It was still a crisis that was unfolding. Um, and so, you know, they were, they were additions a little later on um, once we realized that um, they were going to be, it was going to be important for scholars by the time that this was published to be able to start to get a grip on. And so in these two particular instances where in fact, the state and religion are so wound into each other and in those unfolding crises that they had to be represented to. So it was certainly a dynamic and um, moving 
uh, you know, cha a changing situation. But in the end, I think what we did do is we got very close to our decision that we wanted this to cover all continents um, across, you know, covering at least a three to four thousand year span of um, three thousand year plus span of. Uh, you know, writing and research on um, genocide. Now, one other thing that you'll notice is uh, we've just been talking about this being the Routledge Handbook of Religion and Genocide. And in fact, that was its original title. And somewhere in the middle of the um, discussion, mass atrocity was added to the title because one of the discussions that we got into, and it was around this structural issue, is so what's a genocide and what is not in the context of the um, the, the chapters that we were looking at. It was very clear that not all of them would fall under, even retroactively fall under the UN Convention um, on the, on the you know, Genocide Convention. So we felt that we should be able to have a wider scope. And so uh, we had a discussion, didn't we, Sarah, about, you know, what is that? Is it crimes against humanity? Is it mass atrocity? And we, we dug into that. Um, and maybe you can just share a bit about that discussion because it led us in the end to the title we now have. Yeah, so we um, we ended up falling on this idea that it should be about um, mass atrocity, even though it's something that's still not officially defined, but there is at least a, a contemporary understanding of what it entails and captures um, if we had just gone with religion and genocide, we realized that we were restricting um, the, the possible number of examples and case studies that we would be exploring and in a way contributing to what has become somewhat of a political debate that we did not want to engage in. Um, and in leaning on the strict definition that the accepted definition from the 1948 UN Genocide Convention, that that would have been too limiting. And so we added mass atrocity, understanding that, yes, it's not um, officially uh, defined, but that it does have this um, parameter scaffolding that everybody understands and can agree upon and, and that it also broadened the scope and it broadened the discussion and led to a less exclusive approach for us. And we, we had several terms on the table, you know, we yeah. had violence, violent societies, uh, we had crimes against humanity, you know, it, it was a sort of a, a little, um, and it was actually a very good exercise for the two of us to go through at that point, because in a sense, we, we'd always wanted to have that broader scope so that we were, were looking at the continuum of violence, society and gen and religion. But it wasn't always about religion um, being the being the author or the instigator or the ideology behind the violence. Sometimes it was the other way around that the religion was being attacked by the state, or you know. So it was not. We weren't saying through this title that it was about how religion impacted genocidal societies, but also how genocidal societies might impact people of faith or belief or practice or the organs of. of uh, institutions of religious bodies and so we wanted that very flexible uh, way to look at it in a 360 approach um, and that's it felt to us in the end that by having this rather broad um, definition of mass atrocity that we would have a lot of scope then to be able to uh, look at a lot of case studies that would, would traditionally fall outside of genocide studies per se um, but are pertinent to the study of genocide case studies and interpretations that sometimes we had difficulty with. I mean, there, there were those that were challenging for us um, and that, you know, we, they did not necessarily 
represent ideas or hypotheses that I necessarily would agree with, but in the spirit of this idea of having um, academic freedom, we really wanted to ensure that we cast that broad net and that we were inclusive. Mm -hmm. And that, that included, you know, examples like, um, you know, the India-Pakistan partition um, mm -hmm. or Mozambique civil war, mm -hmm. where, you, you know, typically would not fall under traditional rubric of genocide studies. And yet there are aspects of those um, events that were, um, you know, they were genocidal. They were certainly fall under the, under the, under the mass atrocity um, definition that we'd adopted. And that then allowed us to say that let's look at this because um, we feel that it will bring some uh, new insights and you know we, we might we struggled with some of those sort of uh, edge cases a little you know just in terms of do they really fit um, and, and also you don't exactly know what your authors are going to submit mm -hmm. so they'll give you <laughs> they'll give you an abstract and you go okay that seems to be a good fit the resume is good the publication history is good um, we've seen like we've got an author here who's going to uh, be a good fit for this and then then the draft lands and you're uh oh <laughs> wasn't, right. expecting, wasn't expecting that and it doesn't necessarily mean it was all bad um i mean sometimes it was challenging sometimes it was <laughs> well also we made it we made a very specific decision that we weren't going to make this only english first language mm -hmm. authors so quite a number of the papers came in as second and or third language uh, academic papers and sometimes um, the concepts can be really great and the, and the, the editorial side of it can be challenging. Um, and we had you know, a couple, couple of those. And that's not a criticism, it's just a challenge on no. the editorial side. Yeah. Sure. And, then, and sometimes you also have authors that write in first language English and you also question the linguist, you know, the linguistic skills. <laughs> um, but but I think it's part of putting a volume like this together. Sure. Um, is that you're going to get, first of all, a range of authors with a variety of um, experience in publishing um, in volumes. And you, you can tell in two seconds those that have, you know, done that many times yeah. um, versus those that might be, you know, first-time author or those who are used to authoring on their own rather than for a, for a, for an edited volume um, is also you can sort of get a different... Um, uh, flavor from their from their submissions but what was very clear was as we were receiving the submissions that the the scope that we had intended was working really well i i was as a genocide scholar i was learning a great deal from the papers that were coming in um and you know a couple that stand out for me um you know uh, dennis Cerotti's, uh chapter on the Native Americans in Northeast uh, United States, you know, I mean, just just a, a part of history and a part of genocide scholarship that I was just not familiar with. In fact, the, the, both um, chapters that deal with uh, Native American history were just really eye-opening. Eye-popping is the only word for it, particularly for those of us who do live in the States and realize how subsumed this is within our uh, I'm going to say a popular culture within our culture as a whole um, and how much more work we've got to do and, and why we were pleased that these chapters revealed uh, aspects of our history that are just completely hidden from sight 
in America today. And I think that's part of why we did this volume is to sort of be able to reveal that there's genocide all around us sometimes, even when we're not looking or we're not taking the time to look and learn. So each of you wrote an essay or, or more for this volume, and I'll ask you to start, Sarah. You would have wrote about women rescuers, mostly women rescuers in Rwanda. What, what's the big idea in your essay? What, what conclusions do you have about the intersection of religion or, or maybe faith? And I want to recognize those are related terms, but not necessarily the same term. Um, and rescue in Rwanda. Um, I think for me, and this is a, a recurring theme in most of my work about women's agency during the genocide against the Tutsi in Rwanda, is this idea that um, women were not these angelic beings who just swooped in without thought for themselves or their families and undertook these heroic acts um, blindly and with no personal reasons and causes and drives behind them. And so for me, unpacking more about their complicated selves was extremely important and drove a lot of this work. Um, But also teasing out this idea that across the board, almost every woman I interviewed who partook in an act of rescue, big or small, talked about faith, talked about God, talked about Imana, talked about Nyabingi, talked about um, uh, all Allah, these references to God, to faith as a driving force. And I think the most important part for me was that so many Rwandans took a fatalistic approach. They said, oh, you know, this is this is God's will. And they stood by and did nothing during the genocide or even worse. Some took um, the manipulations of the Catholic Church and other Christian uh, leaders and said, God wants this genocide and actually used it to motivate their acts of perpetration. Here are women who used their faith, this belief in God. Um, in order to enact out acts of resistance, acts of rescue, with great knowledge, knowing that they were doing this at risk to themselves, to their own families, and still they undertook these acts. Even as they experienced violence themselves, they, uh, in some instances, failed to rescue some of the charges that they were uh, they were responsible for. I mean, there were all these different very complicated stories there. And at the core of them, this idea that faith was a a motivator and a driver, not to stand by and do nothing, not to engage in acts of perpetration, but to think critically about the messaging that was coming from the government and other leaders in the community and say, no, I choose to believe something different. And not only do I choose to have different beliefs, I'm going to act on those beliefs. That to me is just tremendous and a, an incredible study to further undertake. I think in a perfect world, I'd go back to Rwanda and just study rescuers because it's just such a, um, it's an understudied area as and um, something I encourage others to think about doing is exploring those complicated stories, um, particularly from underrepresented groups within the country. And for me, that was women. It's a compelling people feel compelled, same word, compelled to act. Do they get, do you hear from them a sense that God will keep them safe? Or is it simply that they are being called to run risks? So that's a great question because I wasn't there to ask them in the midst of the the 100 days, you know, Mm -hmm. do you think God is protecting you in this moment? I'm only able to ask them um, from, for most of them, it was, you know, um, two decades later, Mm -hmm. you know, what do you think was happening during those moments? And 
um, you know, they had had plenty of time to to start um, reflecting and have some self introspection mm. and and kind of unpack how and why did this happen. And so more often, I heard about them saying that it was God's will, it was um, God's hand, God protected them, they were acting out that will of God. Um, I'm not sure that I heard too many references to this idea that God will protect me no matter what. I think they were very realistic in understanding the risks that they had run during that time period and that they did it with this knowledge of, you know, um, this is God's will. Almost similarly fatalistic, if you think about it, as compared to those who stood by and did nothing, they instead accepted that this is, um, I'm thinking of one of the women I interviewed who talks about it as her cross to bear. This is her cross. And her daughter even said, like, of course I was terrified. And then immediately said to me, even Jesus feared and started pulling um, inspiration from the story of Jesus. And so even there, she was um, processing her fear and her sense that I may not survive this experience, again, telling it all in hindsight, but she was processing it through a lens of faith and this being God's will. This may be another question because you haven't had a chance to talk with them since your, your original research, at least not systematically, but, but I wonder if these are people who survived in a, a, an atmosphere where many of their faith community behaved badly, do you have a sense of how their experience, both personally and then watching other people's who, who were fellow believers, how did they shape that shape their interaction with the church after the genocide? Did they stay members of the church? Do they do they stay faithful but not religious? What do you have a sense of that? I can say anecdotally, um, because we did have conversations about, you know, our our conversations talked about life after the genocide and and what they did or did not do. Um, I'm thinking of one extreme story where a rescuer who was, um, when it was found out that she had rescued, she was actually beaten by a neighbor Mm. um, and she was violently threatened and she ended up quitting her church because of the threats that were made against her and assuming a different identity and moving uh, quite a ways away to start a new life for fear of reprisals. Um, Generally, the women whom I interviewed identified themselves as Christian um, and spoke about actively going to church and spoke about, although there is this, um, there's been a rise in the evangelical Christian movement in, um, in Rwanda. And so when they said church, I didn't specify, was it the same Catholic church you were going to before, whichever denomination it was, it's um, Rwanda has a healthy multi-denominational um, Christian presence. Um, it's an interesting question. I, now I want to think about this. Did they end up <laughs> more things to study for the next yeah. time around? Did they change their church? Did they change their faith? Um, I will say in many instances, I mean, people readily identified the religious leaders who had served as bad actors and they were subsequently removed if they hadn't already fled. Um, so I don't think that was necessarily a concern where they would go back to a church where a perpetrator was preaching. Um, but that said, also with the forgiveness culture in Rwanda, there are those who were former perpetrators who have now come back into the church and are, are very active. So this is something to think about. I have to say, I didn't, and it, it, this is not my, I do not have the language skills to really do this, but I, I once attended a church service in Rwanda. And and after the service was done, was told by the person who had brought me, talked about the fissures within the church and the tensions between perpetrators and bystanders and and relatives of victims or victims and, and the way that the church had tried to 
create a common community in the aftermath of genocide. And that is a fascinating topic that I will never have the language skills to, to address, but it's very interesting. You talked about forgiveness, and that's a nice bridge to Stephen. Stephen, your essay, or at least one of your essays, is about forgiveness. Um, and I'd start by saying, you you say in your essay that this was originally intended to be co-authored by Ava Kaur. So maybe you could introduce Ava Kaur to the audience and then say something about what, what you hoped this essay would do. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. Yes, in fact, while uh, putting the um, framework for the book together, um, I, I knew that I was interested in writing on the subject of forgiveness, but the person that I knew that had struggled with that most, that was, you know, someone that was close to me, not a not an academic author, but I felt had a really interesting perspective, was Holocaust survivor Eva Kaur who was a Mengele twin in Auschwitz um, and then later in life had a very uh, profound confrontation with SS doctor uh, Hans Munch, um, who asked her to forgive him. And after much uh, thought and, um, you know, actually meeting with Munch, um, agreed um, at least to what she described as an amnesty, but went on to then develop a philosophy of forgiveness, much criticized within um, the Jewish community and the survivor community as, you know, how can you possibly forgive those monsters for what they did? Um, and so I got to know her, I interviewed her for the USC Shoah Foundation's Dimension in Testimony program. And so I got to sit and ask her, you know, many, many questions about forgiveness. And I realized that the as build uh, version of she forgave the Nazis or, you know, the sort of uh, Eva Kaur hug a Nazi type of uh, approach that was being bandied around about her was a much more nuanced and thought through philosophy of forgiveness and of life and of uh, self freedom. So I was really keen to explore that with her and uh, invited her to, to participate and then she passed away. And so actually part of the chapter does explore the philosophy of Eva Kaur and how she came to have the, the view that she did. But what it enabled me to do then, rather than it being a dialogue with one person, it enabled me to spend some time and to dig into the USC Shoah Foundation's archive um, and to look at a variety of perspectives on forgiveness from a variety of genocides. because. While I was familiar with the theological arguments and discussions around forgiveness and the Holocaust, and I had worked in Rwanda f uh, as um, 
the director of the Kigali Genocide Memorial for a number of years and was familiar with the emerging culture of forgiveness. At that time, it was not fully formed at all in the early 2000s, but it was starting to emerge. Um, nevertheless, I'd not you know, really spent much time on reflection in the Shoah Foundation's archive looking at this particular theme. Um, and I found, as in with the case of many of these subjects, when you go to the 55,000 testimonies in 10 different genocides, um, the, the, the case studies and the, the reflections of individuals on this abound. Um, and of course, I, as I often do in that archive, got completely distracted and lost and ended up you know, writing a whole table of contents for a whole book on testimony and forgiveness, which is still languishing on my de desktop. And if anybody else wants to take it on, you're welcome. Um, but it did reveal a lot to me about the, 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 the fact, the issues of forgiveness are not really anything about um, theology. Um, they might, in fact, um, you know, have, theology may have some bearing on what is seen to be right or wrong in the context of a you know doctrinal context but mainly this is to do with human beings and how they are coping with and confronting their own past at the same time as i was writing this i was also involved in a couple of projects that involved perpetrators in fact i had interviewed or been part of a team that had interviewed four perpetrators in rwanda at the Murambi genocide um, site and had written a chapter and i the, the book on it was actually a book on um it was called why why we kill um and i was right re writing the chapter for the new edition of Why We Kill at the same time as I was writing this chapter for this book. And it seemed to me that um, those, the two sides of the issue for victims like Console Nishimwe um, or Edith who are, or Omagareza who's in, the, uh, in my chapter, um, both of whom uh, had confrontations with you know the perpetrators that killed their families um, is a completely different dynamic than the perpetrator who is confronting mainly his and sometimes her uh, crimes um, and asking for forgiveness um, i decided not to complicate this chapter by bringing the perpetrator's voice into it although i think it's an extremely interesting one because the perpetrator is seeking some kind of um, as in the case of the Simon Wiesenthal story, which is in the, in the book, where the perpetrator is asking for forgiveness. Um, I, I decided to use that to kick off the discussion, but not actually to make it about that dynamic between perpetrators and victims, because I think the victims also need their own space and time to explain the difficulty of confronting the fact that you want truth, you want some kind of closure. Sometimes the only place you can get that is from the perpetrators, and although it may not be full justice or anything like justice, nevertheless, having that or having some form of request for forgiveness and some form of closure is helpful for your dealing with your own trauma, which Eva Kaur took to the full extent of saying, and now having done that, I have freed myself. It's also why I, I um, brought into the chapter the work of Edith Eager, um, psychologist, um, who reflects about self-liberation. And she has a whole, also a philosophy, but from a psychological point of view, is 
that while you may not forgive the crimes, you never, nevertheless need to find ways to free yourself from those crimes. And if that means, you know, confronting the um, the reality and allowing yourself to forgive what was done to you, if not forgive the person for doing it, that's one of the ways in which you can liberate yourself from what otherwise continues to be a trauma in your life. And so I saw those intersections between religion and society and justice and psychology as being just such a rich area that, you know, I think some scholars have explored it very well, but I think it's, it's still, I would say, it's in the, team, in the scheme of things in genocide studies, relatively untouched in terms of the complexity that could be explored. I remember standing and watching, um, or I guess engaging in a discussion with a, a, a Presbyterian circle in Rwanda where that was trying to um, reconcile a set of perpetrators and a set of victims. And, and one of the one of the victims talked about how forgiveness was not a binary thing. It's a uh, today I can forgive you, but yesterday I couldn't, and tomorrow I may not be able to forgive you. So I wonder what that. What did your, the voices you listen to, the people you watch, what sense did you get about how, how that affected the process of forgiveness? Is that seen as a kind of a failure to forgive if you can forgive today or not tomorrow? Or how does that work? No, I think two things about this. That's a really interesting observation. First of all, there is a temporal uh, part of this. That is, the further away you get from the events, um, the, I, would, I wouldn't say the easier it becomes, but some of the um, trauma is more, uh, you know, is more under control and one might be able to rationalize rather than, you know, be in this emotional roller coaster. Nevertheless, I do think um, it's a very good point that the, that the person asking to be forgiven for genocide, I have to say, really has nothing to do with this in practice. It's really got to be about how the victim and their families um, are able to live their lives because their lives have been destroyed. So if one day it's better and one day it's worse, well, that's just the way it goes. That's how trauma is in our lives. And I don't think that the, uh, the the one asked the perpetrator has any say in whether or not they feel like, you know, that's a, a rough justice if they don't get forgiven every day. Seems to me broadly, with all of the many exceptions and qualifications and nuances, that we do live in a culture that since South Africa and the Truth and Reconciliation uh, Commissions that does at least verbally stress reconciliation as an appropriate goal. Do you have a sense, Stephen, how does the broader context of, of what the world or what particular faith traditions teach about forgiveness, how does that affect the way victims um, of genocide try and wrestle with this question of should they forgive? Yeah, I think we see this in a number of the um, papers in the, in the volume, actually, a number of the chapters. That there's a, the, the transitional justice, it forms a part of so many of these chapters because they're all, except for the, uh, the, the Uyghur and the um, Rohingya chapters, they're all, these are all genocides that have concluded. 
um, and therefore are in some form of transitional justice thereafter. And so what you've got, you have these layers. You've got the individuals who have been wronged and are coping with trauma and their own confrontation with the past. We have the society which is re-emerging from that violent past at various points. And you've got then the next generation which has, in some cases, is now the recipient of that um, legacy and is deciding what it will do with that legacy. Um, and the, the transitional justice piece also involves you know, real justice as well. So, for example, in, in, the, in the volume, there are two interesting chapters, both about forensics. I think it's worth pointing out, actually, that a number of these chapters are not authored by you know, traditional research academics, but by people in the field who are doing the work of, if you like, religion, mass atrocity and genocide in a practical way. And a good example of that is the two um, uh, chapters on, on forensics. Uh, uh, Caroline Sturdy Coles is a forensics um, uh, professor uh, who works out of uh, the UK and, and does a great deal of work in Eastern Europe, um, you know, revealing the mass graves of the Holocaust still, you know, 70 years later. And so Study Coles' chapter is just fascinating from a technical point of view in terms of, so how do we find what is what remains? Because in a sense, um, it, com- it intersects with so much of Jewish religion and culture insofar as just leave the dead to be and don't, don't you know, unearth them. First of all, it's, it's a religious prohibition to unearth them after, um, except under, you know, strict supervisory, uh, rabbinical supervisory conditions. Um, but there's a reason for that. Um, and part of it is that not only does it disturb the dead, but it also disturbs the living because then you have a reconfrontation with the past. And on the other hand, uh, Freddie Pacciarelli, um, who's one of the co-authors of a book, on, a chapter on Guatemala, absolutely has to exhume the remains if they're going to have any trials of perpetrators, some of whom are still in power in Guatemala 35 years later. And so you've got this, this real confrontation. But what emerged was when they were doing these exhumations, religious artifacts, religious rites, reburial rites. I, I attended a funeral in Guatemala where there was a Mayan ceremony going on under the trees on the right. Beautiful, by the way, one of the most spiritual experiences I have ever had in my life. And the other half of the family who were Catholic were um, not attending the Mayan ceremony because it was pagan and were waiting for the corpse to be uh, revealed and then um, identified. And this was going on all in this, this sort of right next to this mass grave where this individual had been exhumed 35 years after his death. And yet... Um, it was it was necessary for the forensic process to get any hope of there being a trial for the, the killing of these victims on this what was a, a military base, um, and yet it was very divisive from a religious point of view because the family were finding it extremely difficult to cope with their trauma, particularly because their two religious traditions expected completely different things, and so it was really interesting to have uh, Freddie and Erica authored this chapter about the complexity of unearthing remains 35 years later for the families and the community and yet the necessity to get closure from both a personal and religious perspective. Yeah, I'm going to kind of jump onto that, the theme that you just raised, because one of the things that's really 
that becomes really clear in looking at the table of contents and reading the essays is the way in which you, as you said, you try to include non-Abrahamic non religions. And I wonder what that can tell us. This is not a fair question, I know, because there's lots of specificity, specificity and nuance, but, but are, what kind of broad conclusions or kind of themes did you emerge from this book on in terms of how juxtaposing Judaism and Christianity and Islam against other faith traditions. What what did you what would you bring to our listeners as important after that engagement with this material? And Sarah, I'll ask you to start. And... Of course, <laughs> not a small question at all. Um, I gave you an easy one. <laughs> I feel like one of the biggest goals for me, for this volume, and I, I think Stephen would agree, was that we weren't trying to answer all the questions. We were trying to ask, I, we were trying to ask new questions. And we were also trying to expand um, our community as a body of scholars, our imagination about what we could be exploring and what we could be studying, and also draw a little bit of attention to the risks we run when we silo ourselves off and we study strictly a theological understanding of a certain instance in history or strictly from a genocide studies perspective or anthropology, sociology, but not only that, also incorporating those practitioners who are close to the topics we're discussing, making sure that they're incorporated too so that there isn't this divide between, again, that ivory tower and those who are in the field doing the actual work. So I think for me, a broadening of the conversation and, and an updating of the conversation, because this isn't the first attempt that's been made to create um, an edited volume that addresses these topics, but it's certainly the most recent by quite some, quite a few years. I think one observation for me, which is interesting, I, I, I like the fact you're asking the question about Abrahamic versus um, you know, other faiths. And, you know, we, we've got a chapter in there on animism, which is just yeah. fascinating, you know, just really interesting. Um, but, I think one of the big takeaways for me was it seems to be when the when the religion is closely associated to the political power base, the state, it often ends up on the wrong side of history. And when it is more aligned to the people who are suffering, it often um, suffers itself but comes out on the right side of history. And that can also be at a personal level too. I think some of the, the points that Sarah just made about personal life choices. Yeah. When when individuals align themselves with the state and the ideology and protect their own interests, um, they, religious or not, I mean, 90, what is it, 97% of, uh, of Germans, I think um, Victoria Barnett pointed out, were, you know, um, uh, either Protestant or Catholic Christians, and the church has stayed open throughout the entire period of the Third Reich. Um, so both at an institutional and at a personal level, people were making choices to continue to practice Christianity, and the churches were continuing to align themselves with the state, and the result of it is, well, you, we know what the result of that was. Um, and so I think that was a kind of a very macro level takeaway from me that I had not expected to come away with. But I'm very grateful for our authors for revealing that and making me more curious about. So it's not how do you disaggregate the church from the state or the religion from the state, but how do you make sure that maybe 
that there's more influence from the religion to the state, or at least that you know where you lie from a moral perspective um, and know the point at which you're going to disassociate with the ideology of the state to which you are maybe bound. One of the things that struck me, so, so the animism essay was really good. Another one of the essays that made me think a lot was David, I think it's Tollerton, I'm not sure if that's how you pronounce it, um, who talks about the ways in which thinking about the Holocaust as, as colonial violence leads us to ask new questions about the role of religion and anti-Semitism in the Holocaust. And, and I wonder if you might, and, and perhaps you can, if, if you choose, you can engage that specific question, but more broadly talk about the way in which developments in genocide studies, or perhaps in the study in religion, have changed the kind of questions you're asking in this volume. And, and Stephen, I'll just give you the chance to go first, and then. Well, certainly for me, um, I I started to think about, you know, I, I'm a <laughs> I'm a theologian. I've been trying to think about the relationship between specifically the Holocaust and. Uh, Christian theology for you know a good amount of time, but I think what this volume enabled me to do is to really broaden my own thinking in terms of what are the fundamental questions that that relate to people of faith, and I I would say and also separately institutions that represent those people of faith um, in societies that are challenged with you know violence. And it seems like an obvious question that sort of was underpinning this, but I think it's it's really not a question we ask. In unfolding circumstances, what we tend to do is see religious extremists and then blame the religion for the ideas of the extremists. And in fact, what we're actually seeing is, and what we need to ask more questions about is, so what are the political issues that are either dragging in or enabling this religion to be used as a vehicle because what ultimately the ideologues need is an audience and one of the places to find an audience is in religion because you have followers of that religion so i think some i one of the questions i've got been asking is is it coming from the faith and the religious faith tradition or in fact is it being reversed into the religious faith tradition in order to um, you know, uh, be a parasite on that religion in order to then get what it needs, which is people to follow its genocidal ideas. Now that sounds obvious, um, but it's not a question we often ask until after the violence is done. Um, and I think we need to ask that question much earlier. What is the mechanism here, and how do you, how can you cut that off from the mainstream? And it's an especially effective way of thinking about effective, meaningful prevention and intervention strategies, because if you can reach the religious leaders, which is something that uh, there was some great success done with preventing further violence in Central African Republic. And I remember, Stephen, um, the role that Rwanda and Rwanda's imams played in that and also Aegis Trust, they were able to identify how the, the faith and the religious following was being manipulated and actually reach the top level religious leaders as a point of intervention and de-escalate the violence. Not effectively and totally end it, but de-escalate it. Just as a, a real-time case study. Okay. I, one of the, oh, go ahead, Stephen. No, I, I think Sarah's making a really valid point here, is that while on the one hand, as our, our, 
our world becomes increasingly secular, that many of us might think that religious leaders don't have the influence they once have had. The religious leaders around the world have enormous, enormous impact on very large populations. And I think that that's another thing that's come out of this is that for me, um, and I think um, um, the, the chapter that was about the uh, Alawite warriors uh, was just really interesting from that point of view because you could see in these sort of um, extremist movements how it's also possible to get to leaders and to influence leaders or how how it, it's just that sometimes it's much more fragile than you might imagine and that um, there is a way to get in there and break up the fight a little and uh, get, in, get in and influence those leaders because if you can, then you're just on a different pathway altogether. Time for a couple more questions, and you, you started to preempt one of them, which is 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 where where do we go next? So I guess I'll ask a slightly different one, which is: is there a chapter or a theme or a question that you found really important or memorable in this book that you wanted to bring to the attention of readers? So Sarah, I'll let you go first. Stephen, I might be stepping on your toes with one this one if I also say Walter Zipper's chapter, and that's from a personal <laughs> place. Sorry, um, but what I loved about, so Walter Ziffer is someone that I've known since I was a child, as I mentioned earlier, he was my first interaction with a survivor and uh, very impactful and someone who was a close family friend, but also interwove together his personal experiences, his struggles with faith and his academia and his scholarship. And so for me, I just thought that chapter was a really beautiful, and I love how in the beginning he completely owns where he stands and what his objectives are with the chapter. And then he weaves into this very complicated story about his family and his father and the Yudenrat. And it's just, uh, for me, this is a very um, impactful chapter that I was so delighted when he agreed to contribute it already into his 90s and said, yeah, sure, of course, I'm happy to do so. What about you, Stephen? Yeah, no, it's not. Uh, you did steal my thunder. Uh, I thought Walter Zippert's <laughs> chapter was just wonderful. You know, and also working with Holocaust survivors, as I do, I love the fact that Walter is a scholar um, and can also put that personal story through the lens of his theological scholarship. It was re remarkable to work with him. So if I have to take a, take another one, I, I would say the um, Badama Pitic, um, her chapter on music, she's an ethnomusicologist from Bosnia, and she's... Um, talks about the impact of sacred music on the uh, Bosnian genocide. And I, what was so profound about it for me was not only was it a beautifully written and articulated chapter, including these lyrics from these songs that, you know, you, you can take you right into the culture, was that sacred music and a book about genocide would not have been something I would have imagined. Um, and um, yet she was able to show the power of sacred music from a cultural perspective during this unfolding, you know, war and genocide and the impact it had on the populations, both positively and negatively. Um, and I thought she revealed 
that aspect of Bosnian culture, but also of um, how those liturgical traditions are deeply embedded in the minds and psyche of those who follow a religion. They're kind of deeply visceral. And so in a sense, you can use music for good and evil. We, we saw it being used for you know, terrible evil in Rwanda where these songs would be used, and also in the Third Reich, you know, where music is used and played and to whip up the crowd. And in this case, it was also this sense of this is the sacred music tradition and this is what happened during the, during the genocide. And I thought she did a wonderful job of explaining that. Oh, I agree. That was, that was an outstanding contribution. So we've taken up a lot of your time. The last questions are just a pair of questions and I'll ask them each in turn of you um, that I always end the interview with. Um, so Sarah, we'll start with you. Could you, A, suggest a, a, a book or a documentary or a, a piece of art or something that was meaningful to you that shaped your thinking about this issue while you were reading this? And then B, um, what, if anything, are you working on now? A book to recommend. You know what? A book that I had next to me that I was occasionally skimming through when I had a minute as I was working on this um, is the book, uh, The Resistance Network by Khachik Maradian. Um, and I think that is a tremendous, tremendous book. An article I wish I had had at my fingertips when I was writing this is another one uh, that Nikki Fox and Holly Nyseth and Zita Tira, and I'm forgetting the third author, so my apologies to the, the co-author. Uh, they wrote an incredible article called Following Heavenly Orders, which was all about um, rescue and resistance in the Rwanda context, and I wish I'd had that one. Um, and then another one that I think is an oldie but goodie is the one by the Alliners, the altruistic personality. Uh, that's just a tremendous resource, especially if anyone's trying to really pick apart and think through this idea of rescue. Uh, heard Nikki Fox's name and it triggered something. Nikki was a guest on the show a while back, and you can find her interview in the archives. So. I have a bookmark to listen to. It's actually on my list. It's in my queue. I'm working my way to it. Excellent. She's great. Yes. And Stephen, something you recommended the audience and some sense of what you're working on now. Yeah. So I was, um, while we were writing this book, I was um, involved in a, a film called The Final Account. It's um, a remarkable archive of about 240 former perpetrators from Nazi Germany that were filmed by the late filmmaker Luke Holland. And I was familiar with that from the very origins of the archive from going back to like 2008 and had followed Luke's progress. And it was coming out as a document. Well, it was, it was in, it was in edits at the time. And so I was thinking about the issues of forgiveness and of perpetration and so forth while also seeing this emerging film with uh, what will be an archive available for researchers with these 200 plus um, perpetrators. And that for me was very profound when that came out about the same time as our book is called The Final Account, it's a documentary film. I was also at the time, I get I invited to write forwards for various books and I, I was writing the forward for a book called We Share the Same Sky um, by Rachel Cerotti. And um, it's about her 10 year journey to discover her mother grandmother's story and she literally gets on trains and planes and buses and lives in the same barn where her grandmother lived and you know in denmark and huh. follows the boat across the sound to sweden where in fact she was rescued from sweden was one of those rescued from denmark a remarkable story of this you know young woman who traveled literally in her grandmother's footsteps it's also a terrific podcast and so um 
that was happening at the same time as writing this is sort of resonant um, resonant in my mind um, I'm currently working I just finished actually a book called the trajectory of Holocaust memory which is a book which uh, is not a, it's an authored volume which tries to reimagine Holocaust testimony and provide a new philosophy of testimony which I guess we'll make another podcast another day <laughs> we've been listening to uh, Sarah Brown and Stephen Smith talking about their uh, edited collection, The Routledge Handbook of Religion, Mass Atrocity, and Genocide. And Sarah and Stephen, thanks so much for being with us on the show. And as you anticipated, I hope you'll be uh, willing to come back some other time to talk about your new projects. But until then, thank you so much. And uh, we appreciate you being here. Thank you, Kelly. Thank you. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW group. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.